Have you ever wondered how much information there is in the world? Have you ever thought about how much there is to know? I mean, I often think of how much I don't know, but have you ever thought about how much there might actually be in the world? Right? Or how little we know of the total of that. Right? And, and I mean, this isn't just, you know, knowledge you get from books, but even practical knowledge, right? Like the fact that if something goes wrong in my house related to plumbing, I'm mostly going to be at a loss of what to do and have to call a plumber because he or she's more knowledgeable than I am about that. If I were to have a question about music that was technical, I'm not going to be able to answer that question for myself. So I'd have to ask someone who had knowledge of that. I, I pay someone to do my taxes, presuming that he has knowledge of the tax code in as much as any human being can have knowledge of the U.S. tax code, right? So there's so much to know, and we know so little of it. In 2011, researchers, because this is the kinds of things that people who want to know do, decided how much information could we store? Because I bet whatever amount we could store, there's at least that much, if not more, knowledge that's out there. So they decided, don't know how, wouldn't have understood it even if I probably would have read it, they decided that we could store 295 exabytes of information. Of course, I don't need to describe what an exabyte is to you. You know what that is. But it's 295 followed by 20 zeros. So my head can't even get around that bit of information. But we could store that much information But these researchers also know that that's still less than 1% of the information that is stored in all the DNA molecules of one human being. So all that information that they think exists and could be stored, it is less than 1% of the information that your DNA contains. There's a lot of information out there. And we haven't even thought about the mind of God. Right, in the sense that, like, he who knows all things, what amount of information must God know? So, in other words, there's simply more information than we could ever know. That, I think, we all understood in you. But what's important here is that we can know things. That we have the ability as human beings to know. And we do know. In as much as we say, I don't know. Right? Or in as much as we don't specialize in things and we say, I don't know how to do that. Right? It's true. There's much we don't know, but we can know. We are capable of knowing things, and we do, in fact, know things. Matter of fact, as human beings, we are a big part. A big part of what we do is, I would say, traffic in knowledge. Right? In this parish, in particular, traffic's in knowledge because we have Lots of students, lots of former students, lots of professors. Many of us make a living trafficking in knowledge. Our accountant certainly does that. Our lawyers certainly do that, right? We all do that to some degree, but all human beings traffic in knowledge. And as Christians, we traffic in a kind of dangerous knowledge, I think, because we traffic in a knowledge that can lead to life eternally or death. That is, we know who Jesus Christ is and accept him as our Savior, but because we know that, we now know something that gives life or 
The other way to think about it is we now know something that could, in fact, take away life. So, so knowledge exists. We can know, we do know, and as Christians, we have a knowledge available to us that, again, I'm simply thinking of as a dangerous kind of knowledge. In our reading from Deuteronomy tonight, we are told that God raises up prophets, and it's at least implied in the text that these prophets possess a knowledge that the people need to listen to, right? That's the difference between a prophet and a, and a normal person, is a prophet has a kind of knowledge that people need to listen to. The text says, you shall listen because God will put his words in his mouth. Prophets speak forth God's words, God's knowledge. What they know is there because God has given it to them. So therefore, we must listen to these words because they're God's words. God requires that these words, this knowledge must be heard. It's not that the prophet necessarily should convince us that we should listen to him or her, but it's the words of God coming from the prophet that compels us to listen to the true prophet of God. But the text here from Deuteronomy also warns us of so-called prophets, false prophets, right? Those who presume to speak God's words in God's name, but aren't in fact speaking forth God's words in God's name. Their knowledge is not the knowledge of God that has been given to them. It is a knowledge that they claim to possess that they do not in fact possess. And the, the judgment on them is severe. They'll be put to death if they presume to teach a knowledge that is not that given them by God. Thus, there are dire consequences to possessing and proclaiming God's words, God's knowledge. And like prophets, we, as God's followers, also have a similar burden because we, we have the word of God, we have the knowledge of God in us because we, we have Christ, and so therefore we become stewards of this knowledge. And if we use it for good, if we speak God's words in God's name, good things come about. But if we're tempted to think that we know the mind of God and we speak forth things that are not true, things that are not of God, then we run the risk of putting the souls of others in jeopardy, and I would suggest from this text even our own souls. Jesus then, when we get to our reading from Mark tonight, when he shows up on the scene... Right? We, we've learned from Deuteronomy that there are both true and false prophets, but it's God himself who raises up true prophets and even gives them the content of their message. So when we come to the reading from Mark tonight, we have people uh, surprised at the teaching of Jesus because of what it can accomplish. Right? Jesus uses his words and he, and he drives out unclean spirits. He gives life to people and those who see it are astonished because he has authority and he's speaking forth this new teaching, the text says. But really, in order to understand what Jesus is doing here in Mark, we need to just take a quick detour into the Gospel of John. Right? So, so there we see in John 1.21 and verse 25 that the Jews were waiting for the prophet. That's what the text says. The Jews were waiting for the prophet. And, and John the Baptist shows up and they say, are you the prophet? And John says, no, I'm not the prophet. He's yet to come. Right? And so then in John 1, 45, and John 6, verse 14, and John 7, verse 40, we have different people, different individuals recognizing 
that Jesus is this prophet. Oh, you're the prophet, and Jesus never says no. Unlike John, he knows that he is, in fact, the prophet. And he himself says that he's the prophet. And not only that, but he's the prophet that is, in fact, talked about by Moses in Deuteronomy. And Jesus says that on at least two occasions. In John 5, verse 46, uh, Jesus says, Moses wrote of me. Right? And so that reference to Moses, Deuteronomy, like, Moses wrote about me. I am the prophet. I am the true prophet whose words come from God. And, of course, in this sense, Literally, they're coming from God, right? So without getting into the whole hypostatic union of the, 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 the divine and human coming together, Jesus says, yes, I am the prophet sent of God. And so Moses wrote of me. And then in John 12, verses 49 to 50, Jesus says that he fulfills the requirements of a prophet. He understands what Moses is saying in Deuteronomy 18 and says, I fulfill those requirements, quote, for I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me these words, is the implication. Right? So we see from Deuteronomy that don't presume to be a prophet. You could die for presuming that. And true prophets have the words of God. And, and John shows us that Jesus is the prophet. He, he is the one who has the teaching of God. He is the true prophet. And so when we come to Mark then, and Mark is... Um, talking about and talking to these people, or Jesus is, it's recorded by Mark, and we see Jesus teaching as a prophet, right? Then we know he's the one who has the words of God. And this explains why Jesus's quote-unquote new teaching has power, because he is the prophet. And as the true prophet, he has God's words. And so when he commands the demons to come out, they obey him. And his authority comes because he is the prophet of God. As one commentator notes, authority means that Jesus' words come straight from God. That's what it means to teach as one who has authority, is that your words are God's words. Your message comes directly from God. Jesus appeals to no one, right? Jesus isn't out there trying to prove that he's a prophet. He didn't claim it as a job title, put a sign outside his house and try to convince others that he was a prophet. No, he simply spoke the words of God and people recognized it because those words had authority. So unlike the scribes, the teachers of the law, Jesus did not have to try to quote other authorities to make his case. Right? So if we think about the way books are written today, an author makes a claim, and if that claim seems unusual or unique or novel or you're unsure about it, you look for the footnote. Right? The author has to prove that he has read someone else who agrees with him. That's what we do when we write books. But I'm also a footnote reader. I love footnotes. I actually own books for the footnotes. Right? My MA thesis director in Minnesota, he published, he had been studying a particular monk named John Cashin for a long time, and he published his definitive study of him when I was a student. And I got my hands on a copy of that book, and it was 125 pages of book and about 225 more pages of endnotes. It was beautiful. It was a work of art. Right? It was amazing. It was worth its weight simply because of the notes. Jesus doesn't have to do that. The scribes are saying, no, we, we're authorities. Listen to us because we can quote this other person. Jesus doesn't have to do that because his words are the words of God. And not just because he's divine, but because he's the prophet sent by God. 
So even if we think of just Jesus and his humanity, he is still the prophet. And those words are God's words, and so therefore they have authority and power, and they can give life, and they do give life. Even the demons understand that these are the words of God and that Jesus has authority. They listen to it. So we as human beings, we know there's all this knowledge. We know that we can know. We know that we possess some amount of knowledge. But we also know that that knowledge can wound and knowledge can harm. And we have to be careful how we use this knowledge. And we should not presume to act like we have a kind of knowledge, especially about the things of God when we don't, because there's consequences to that. But we see Jesus model for us this authority of knowing the words of God, the knowledge of God, and speaking those words forth and giving life. And so I think Paul picks up on this in our lesson from 1 Corinthians tonight. The context here seems to be that the Corinthians asked Paul a question. We know that they had sent a letter to Paul with a number of questions, and it appears that one of those questions is an issue raised by the Corinthian believers themselves. What about meat sacrificed to idols? Should we eat it? Right? So, so Paul is expected to give an answer. As the apostle of God, he, he's expected to teach them and to form them. But Paul doesn't just immediately say, yeah, of course you can eat meat sacrificed to idols. It's no big deal. It hasn't harmed the meat. You're not worshiping the idols themselves. That would be problematic. Go ahead. When you go to the meat market, you don't have to wonder where the meat came from. Buy it, fix it, and eat it in good faith. Paul could have simply asserted that and said that, but... But Paul knows that even if we have the answer to that question, and even if that answer is rooted in knowledge, that that needs to be tempered by our love for others, manifested in our sensitivity to another's lack of knowledge. Paul knows that some people in Corinth don't share that perspective. That's not how they think, that they don't have that knowledge, and they're not ready to simply be taught that knowledge. Right? So he says knowledge, right, from the standpoint of Christians, even though we can eat meat, we, we, we have to share that knowledge with love because some do not know this. Therefore, it would harm a fellow believer to simply say, eat the meat, it's fine. But I don't know about that. No, just eat it. Listen to me. I have the knowledge about this. It would be harming, not helpful It would not be formative for them, but might even destroy them. It would go against their conscience and wound them. But in love, in love, Paul says, we speak forth this knowledge. We temper our knowledge with love so as not to harm another person. We keep our knowledge in check so that we do not wound another believer. And so Paul understands the weightiness of possessing knowledge. He he understands that our words and what we know are only in part, and therefore we must be careful how we deploy them. We must know and love. We can speak with authority, but we must not harm others in the process. Further, just as false prophets sometimes speak as if they were speaking the words of God, If they were not the words of God, then we saw that they were risking their very lives. They were taking the chance that God would put them to death. And I would suggest, is this not true of us too? Maybe not death, but would we not be called out by God? Would we not be disciplined for presuming that we know the mind of God in such a way as to speak with authority when in fact we don't have that authority? Would it not be wrong of us to heed Paul's warning to temper our knowledge with love? 
All Christians at the end of the day only know in part. And that's what Paul is working towards. This is in verse chapter 8, but we know in chapter 13, Paul gets to, right, the famous love passage, right? Those words of God inspired for us so that we have something to read at weddings. But in that, chapter 13, Paul comes back to love in order to say, look, we know in part. And even if we have these words, and even if we have knowledge, but we don't love well, we have nothing. And so we know in part, and so we have to check ourselves to realize that even though I may know, I still only know in part, and even though I may know how I deploy that knowledge could hurt another believer. That I have to deploy this knowledge in love. That I have to steward the knowledge that God has been given to me so as not to hurt or, God forbid, destroy others. I mean, how many people have walked out of the church of Jesus Christ because of the words spoken to them? Words that may have been true, but were not spoken in the right spirit of love. Words that may have been true, and maybe they weren't ready to hear those words, but shared in such a way as to not give them an opportunity to respond, but instead they were simply meant to wound. Knowledge, I mean, it's a, it's a dangerous thing. And for those of us that traffic in it, which is most of us, if not all of us, and again, as believers with the knowledge that we have, we have the added burden of knowing that our knowledge, if rightly disseminated, can lead to eternal life. It can lead to human flourishing. Our words can form people into great Christ followers, but we should also know that our words can harm. And trust me, I know this well. I do not get up here every week and preach or go into my job every week and teach, especially Bible and theology, without realizing that I have to steward the words of God. Which is why, at the end of the day, I am willing to be wrong. That I do not stand up here and claim that I know something definitively. Yes, am I convinced that I do know certain things? Yes. Do I preach, I hope, with some amount of confidence? Yes. But do I hold this loosely so as to be corrected? I hope so. I try. That every three years as we come around to these same lessons, that I am open to correction and being listening to the Spirit of God, that maybe I'm saying something or have said something that's wrong and too harsh. Jesus, as the prophet of God, used what he knew for good. And the Apostle Paul tells us that we must do the same. Our knowledge is for building up in love, not wounding and destroying. So let us tread lightly as distillers and possessors of knowledge, because it's powerful. But we have to keep in mind that we only know in part. Otherwise, we run the risk of ruining perhaps ourselves or even others. And again, we don't know everything, both individually or collectively. We do not claim as Anglicans to know things that others don't. We do not claim to have some sort of a knowledge that others lack. But what we do know and what we are convinced of, even that needs to be shared well and lovingly. So as we continue to walk through this epiphany season, thinking a bit longer about light and how we have been illuminated by the truth of the gospel and how we've been entrusted with that knowledge, that life-giving knowledge of Jesus as the Savior, let us tread well. 
Let us love well so that we present that gospel knowledge to others in a way that brings them to Christ, does not drive them away. As we continue to be Christians in the, on the path of formation, let us learn to build one another up with our words, not to use them to harm and to destroy. Mostly, let us realize that we possess something very powerful. And God calls us to use it, but he calls us to use it in such a way that demands that we love. And so let us love one another well. Let us love others well. Let us know, but let us love. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.